passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Now, in order, if we were in first service, usually I would say around this time, hey, the children would be dismissed for Children's Church. I can't say that because we're in second service, but that is all about to change. Just a reminder, we're going to be having Children's Church that will be starting up, I think it's either next week or the week after during second service. So people who have their kids will have a place to put them. So we're excited about that. Now, if you're a visitor, it is great to have you here on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, my name is Kurt. I am one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And this morning, we're going to be continuing in our study of the book of Jude. Before we get into the study, I just need to ask you a quick question. Um, how many of you guys like action movies? Thank you. A couple of you guys are just like, yeah, that's me. I'm an action movie guy. Well, if you like action movies, you came to the right sermon. Because this is an action movie sermon. Yeah, Jake's like, yeah. Jake, we got a million people in body bags. We have, like, demon babies. We have fire from heaven. It's all in here. So this is the sermon for you if you like some action. Now, we're going to be uh, going to be working our way through Jude verses 5 through 7. So I'd like to ask you to get your copy of the Bible out. I don't care if you're using a phone Bible or a paper Bible. If you're using a paper Bible, Jude is really easy to find. Just go to the end with Revelation and go back one book. You see this tiny letter with only 24 verses that we're working our way through. Now let me just take a moment, since we have some guests with us for the holiday weekend, to briefly catch those guests up to what we are studying here in the book of Jude. Jude, by the way, is a half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote um, this brief letter around the year 69 A.D. to counter a problem that had begun to arise in the early church. That problem was that spiritual terrorists had begun to creep their way into the church. We covered this last week. These spiritual terrorists are people who look like Christians, they sit in churches like Christians, but they're actually not Christians. Their goal is to infiltrate the church, then destroy the church from the inside by eroding people's confidence in Jesus, eroding people's love for Jesus, and eroding their confidence in the Word of God. So why they claim to love Jesus Spiritual terrorists actually want to pull people away from Jesus. This idea of spiritual terrorism, where they infiltrate the church, it began in Jude's day, and he wrote this letter to counteract that, but it has continued throughout history all the way to our day. And we learned last week about what spiritual terrorists do and what it's like in our time. Spiritual terrorists have infiltrated and destroyed entire denominations of the church in America. Once solid, Bible-believing mainline denominations have been infiltrated by people who are what they would call liberalists, who don't believe the Bible is actually the Word of God, who don't believe Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And they try to shift these denominations away. These spiritual terrorists have also infiltrated churches and destroyed them. They've infiltrated schools and educations of uh, higher learning and destroyed them as well. Last week we talked about some of these institutions and the schools they destroyed. 
we learned that in America, many of our early universities were actually created for the express purpose of training up pastors that would go around our country and share the good news and also travel around the world sharing the gospel. But spiritual terrorists infiltrated those schools and over time pulled people away from their confidence in Jesus Christ. Those kind of schools would include Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, and the University of Chicago, just to name a few. Now, if you go to Jude verse 3, which is where we looked at last week, you can see where Jude writes in that verse the purpose of this letter. He says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, fight for the faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. He says, as Christians, you need to fight back against these spiritual terrorists who are slipping in among you, trying to pull you away from the essential core beliefs of what it means to be a Christian. We learned what they were last week, that we are saved by Jesus alone. We are saved by faith alone. We are saved by God's grace alone, not by our works. And this is all found in the Bible, alone. Do not be pulled away from this, Jude says. Fight for this. You know why? Because it was delivered to you, not made up by you or anybody else. This is God's gospel. This was God's good news. Nobody has the right to change it. He gave it to us. And he gave it to us once for all. It's not imperfect. It doesn't need to be updated like your phone every six weeks. It's good. It was good when he gave it 2,000 years ago, and it's just as effective to save people today. So Jude says, fight these spiritual terrorists who want to come inside your churches, who want to infiltrate you and pull you away from Jesus. Because if they pull you away from Jesus... You are no longer saved by Jesus. They've successfully destroyed you and ruined the church. Then in Jude 4 last week, he gave us the way that we can sort of recognize these spiritual terrorists among us. He said, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's his description of the spiritual terrorists. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. How do you recognize these people? I have this in your outlines. They are ungodly people. They live an ungodly life because they're not genuinely born again. When you come to Jesus and you ask Jesus to forgive your sin, and you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you are born again. And there is an orientation change in your heart. Instead of enjoying sin for your life, you're repulsed by sin in your life. You have a hunger for holiness in your life. Now, is there a perfection in holiness? No, we all still struggle with sin. But there's a change of direction in our heart when we have been born again. And Jude says, you recognize these people because even though they're in the church, 
they're going to continue to live an ungodly life because they have never genuinely been born again. He also says you can recognize them this way. They will see Jesus' forgiveness of sin as actually a green light to pursue more sin. Well, you know, why don't I just go ahead and enjoy my sin? Because Jesus will always forgive me of my sin. I want to plunge further and deeper into my sinfulness and my wickedness. Jesus forgives us for everything. And Jude says, that just gives evidence that you have not been born again. Remember where Paul writes about this in Romans? So I sin all the more that grace may abound? No, because when you've been born in Christ, there is that change in the orientation of your heart. You don't delight in our sin. We're repulsed by our sin. We want to fight against our sin in a way we never did until the Holy Spirit took up residence in our heart. So these guys, they delight in sin. The other way we can recognize them is this. They want to be saved by Jesus, but they refuse to have Jesus as their Lord and Master. Yep, Jesus has to forgive me, but I'm in charge of my life. I do what I want. Jude says that's the call letters of a spiritual terrorist among you. Those are the people who are trying to lead you away from Christ. Ungodly lives, green lights for sins, Jesus is their Savior, but not Jesus as their Lord. That brings us to Jude verses 5 through 7, where we're going to be studying this morning. Where the whole point that Jude is making in these verses is this idea of fighting the spiritual terrorists is not a trivial thing. It's a very serious thing. This is not a laughing matter. This is a serious matter. These guys have the intent of destroying you eternally. They want to send you to the lake of fire. And you know how we are. We, we tend to go, oh, can't we just compromise? Can't we just meet in the middle? Can't we just get along? Jude says, not in this matter. Absolutely not. There is no compromise on Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone. There's no middle ground. And I'm, he says, I'm going to show you from history why this is so incredibly serious. Don't be saved by Jesus and then turn your back and walk away from Jesus or it will not go well for you in the end. In fact, if you're following along in your outlines, I put down right in the top here, what is the main theme that Jude is driving home in these verses? It's simply that rebellion against Jesus always ends in disaster. Rebellion against Jesus always ends in disaster. So let's read these verses, verses 5 through 7. Stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along in your copy of Scriptures as I read those verses. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own, within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah 
and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That ends the reading of the scriptures. You can be seated. Jude is going to give us three examples from history of what happens when people turn their back on Jesus. First, we'll look at the Exodus generation who was saved by Jesus but then turned their back on him and what happened to them. Then we'll look at some angels who knew about Jesus' incredible power but turned their back on him and what happened to them. And then we were originally going to go look at Sodom and Gomorrah. But here's what's happened this week. If you're here from the Spencer campus this morning, first of all, thank you for coming. And uh, I feel sorry because we had so many COVID exposures on the Spencer campus, we actually had to shut down that campus at the end of the week. And so that campus is not operating right now. And then Pastor Jordan was going to be up here, and we were going to work together a little bit on Sunday. And then at the last minute, he has some questionable COVID exposure. So then he couldn't come. So I decided about 30 minutes before the first service to make an audible call at the line of scrimmage, which is we're only going to do the first two points of this message this morning. Next week, we'll come back and do point three on Sodom and Gomorrah. That way, Jordan can take his sermon that he prepared and still deliver it next week. So that's the way we can stay together as campuses, and we're excited about that. So go ahead and bear with me as we play a little bit of flying by the seat of the pants and only do two points today. Let's begin. Follow along in your outlines. The Exodus generation turned their back on Jesus and never saw the promised land. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We'll work our way right through this verse. First thing we notice, we need to remember Bible lessons of the past because they are simply easy to forget. Right? He says it here. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. It's easy to come to church. And either myself or another pastor gets up and he opens the Bible and he starts teaching the Bible and you go, I've already heard that verse before. I've heard a sermon on that verse before. And then your brain starts to say, well, I'm just going to check out a little bit because this is only review. And the scriptures would say, there's nothing wrong with being reminded of what we already know. Because, folks, it is so easy to forget it. A pastor's job is not to invent new truth. It's to remind us of the old truth we desperately need to remember, but so easily forget. My daughter, Deanna, is in college now, and she in her first week of classes, and she called me, and she has Spanish. And she has to be in Spanish class for two hours a day. And she's only allowed to speak Spanish when she's in the class. And she says, Dad, I took Spanish in high school, and I did really well, but I think I forgot everything because I didn't speak Spanish during the summer. And you know what they say, if you don't use a language, you will lose a language. Same truth of the Bible. If we're not constantly being reminded of what we already know, it's so easy to forget those things and then not apply those things to our lives. 
Jude is not the only one who reminds us about the importance of being reminded of Scripture. Paul or Peter talks about this. He says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Just telling you the same old stuff again and again so you don't forget. Paul says the same thing. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's actually safe for you. To remind you of what you know, because it's so easy to forget. So we come to church and expect that part of what we teach will be things you already know. But it's something we need to be reminded of. This is also why in January I challenged you to keep your finger in the text. Do not have just Sunday morning be the only time that you're reminded of Bible truth. Get in God's Word during the week. Read your Bible on your own and let the Holy Spirit remind you of what you need to know. We're doing our Take Up and Read Challenge um, this, this year. We're just finishing up 1 Samuel, and in your bulletins is a card that divides up 2 Samuel. And I'd encourage you to read through 2 Samuel with us. It's essentially one chapter a day for five days a week, giving you the weekend to catch up. Which, by the way, we all need those times to catch up, don't we? Now, as you read through 2 Samuel, I guarantee you it'll be stories that you've read or heard of before. But it's truth we need to be reminded of again because it's so easy to forget. The next thing we see is this. Jesus is the one who saved God's people out of Egypt. It says Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Occasionally I get a chance with the free church denomination to be part of ordination councils. That's where young pastors, they come before a group of older peer pastors, and we grill them. Do they keep their finger in the text? Do their answers come from the Bible? Do they know their Bible? Uh, essentially, can they defend the ten-point statement of faith of the free church? And then we like to push them a little bit and to see the extent of their Bible knowledge, which really likes to freak them out a bit. And I'll tell you, what, one of my favorite questions to ask of young pastors says this, where do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Now, sometimes you ask that question, their eyes get real big and they get quiet because they do not know. But you guys would pass because we're preaching through the book of Jude. And Jude just told us one of the answers, that it was Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And if you start looking at this whole topic, it's Jesus in the Old Testament who was always busy saving his people. And you get to the New Testament, Jesus saves us there too. In the Old Testament, Jesus saved his people out of the land of Egypt from physical slavery and physical death. You come to the New Testament, Jesus takes on a body to save us in a much greater way. He saves us from the ultimate enemy, which is slavery to sin, and the ultimate death, which is eternal damnation and the lake of fire that we fully deserve. So Jesus in the Old Testament was saving God's people, and Jesus in the New Testament is saving God's people. 
So Jesus, if he was the one that was saving God's people in the Old Testament, he was the one that sent the plagues on Egypt. He was the one that parted the Red Sea. He was the one who provided manna for food. Did you realize that? Now, you say, okay, well, we see that in Jude, but we see that in the rest of the Scriptures. Oh, actually, if you go through the New Testament with a fine-tooth comb, you find all kinds of hints about this. For example, 1 Corinthians 10.4, it says, And all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. The Exodus generation twice faced death from dehydration. Beginning of their wilderness wanderings and at the end. And they drank water from a rock. Who was that rock who saved them from certain death? Jesus. We go to 1 Corinthians 10.9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We'll see in a moment that Israel in the wilderness rebelled uh, ten times. And Paul says it was not just Jesus who saved them out of the land of Egypt, but when they rebelled that ten times in the wilderness, they were actually rebelling against Jesus, who's the one who took them out of Egypt. Now here's one that's a little bit more convoluted. I'll read it to you. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You're saying, what does that have to do with Jesus in the Old Testament? If you've been around Crosswinds for a while, you remember we preached through the Gospel of John. We preached through this passage. And the key to this is context. This was said by Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Jews had a massive candelabra. It was actually the, the candelabra itself was bigger than the houses. And they would fill this thing with oil. And then at night, they would take and they would light this. And the flame from this candelabra would go way, way up into the sky. And it was bright enough to light Jerusalem at night, all from the one flame. And it was to remind God's people of their forefathers when they were taken out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness wanderings, what led them? A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And as you take this apart in the Greek, Jesus was identifying himself as, I was that cloud by day. I was that pillar of fire by night who was leading you to the promised land. Jesus is the one who saved his people out of the land of Egypt. So, Jesus was busy saving his people in the Old Testament from slavery and death, and he's busy saving us in the New Testament. But he's just saving us in a greater way. That's why he took on a body, so he can save us from slavery to sin and eternal damnation. And this brings us to our main point, which is point C. The Jesus who saved God's people out of Egypt later destroyed them because they did not believe. That Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe, he says. This is the point that Jude wants us to remember. 
The same Jesus who saved the Exodus generation later destroyed the Exodus generation because of their lack of faith. This is found in Exodus chapters 6 through 14 and in Numbers chapter 14. I want you to momentarily put yourself in the Exodus generation's shoes. Think of what they had experienced when Jesus saved them. They were completely helpless slaves, controlled by one of the largest superpowers in the world at that time, the people of Egypt, or the land of Egypt. And then what happened is God systematically, piece by piece, began to crush that superpower. First it was turning the water into blood. Then it was frogs covering the land. Then it was gnats covering the land. Then flies covering the land. Hail on the land. Locusts eating the crop on the land. The plague of death killing the firstborn. And as you get further and further into these things, what's amazing is it becomes very specific. Like the Jews' neighborhood is untouched, but the Egyptians' neighborhood is destroyed. One block is fine, the other block is devastated. It's no question that Jesus is the one who's carrying out judgment on Israel. Then they're kicked out of Egypt. They go to the Red Sea and they cross the Red Sea. And some people say, oh, it was just low tide. No, it wasn't. Read the text in Exodus. Plus, in Psalm 78, verse 13, it explicitly says, they walked through the Red Sea with a wall of water on their left and on their right. Yet they walked on dry ground. One to two million people walked across the Red Sea. And when Pharaoh's army tried to follow, the waters came back and every single one of them drowned. Then they were in the wilderness, hungry, nothing to eat for these millions of people. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts providing manna every morning, but one day a week. So it's obvious that Jesus is the one providing their daily bread, supernaturally. They get thirsty. Twice, water comes out of a rock. They come to Mount Sinai. God come down, comes down on the mountain. The mountain is filled with fire and smoke. Pretty amazing stuff. Imagine if you were alive in that generation to see God acting like that all the time. But here's what's amazing. What does that Exodus generation do? They All they do is grumble, they whine, they complain. Manna again? I mean, how many ways can you cook this stuff? I want to go back to Egypt. After all Jesus has done for them, they constantly rebel against him. It all comes to a head when they go into the promised land. There were 12 spies that went in the promised land to check it out for 40 days. Those spies come back, and 10 of those spies say this. It's a great place. It's an amazing place. But the people there are huge. We look like grasshoppers in front of them. We're all going to die. Let's go back to Egypt. After all that time to get there, two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, they're of a different belief. They say, yes, we do look like grasshoppers, but God and grasshoppers is a winning combination. We can beat anything 
I mean, look what he's done for us. He took us out of the land of Egypt. He brought us through the Red Sea. He's feeding us right now, manna every morning, except for one day a week. Water, he's like, God will provide. And yet those people, after seeing all that Jesus had done for him, chose to rebel against Jesus and said they want to go back to Egypt. And Jesus said, enough is enough. You're not going to go in. All of you are going to walk in circles in the desert for 40 years until every last one of you is dead and buried. And your graves, when they dig them, you'll be able to see the promised land you couldn't go to with your own eyes just on the horizon. The only ones who are going in are your kids, 20 years old and under. And Jude's message is, if you've experienced incredible salvation by Jesus, do not dare turn your back on Jesus. The same Jesus who saved you can become the Jesus who destroys you if you turn your back on him. And the salvation that we have received from Jesus is far greater than the salvation that the Israelites experienced with Jesus. We must not turn our back on him. It's a disastrous end for us if we do. Look what the scriptures say. Numbers 14. But truly as I live, and as all the, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. And then a little later in that chapter, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, and those who have grumbled against me. It's a horrifying consequence to be saved by Jesus and then to turn your back on Jesus. Do not let those spiritual terrorists who have infiltrated among you tear you away from the Christ who has saved you. Contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now we get to the next verse. and We find a similar point, but from a different angle. Some of the angels who rebelled against Jesus are bound in a gloomy pit of darkness. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. All right. Now we get to some super exciting stuff and to some super freaky stuff. The last verse was about the Israelites who had been saved by Jesus, then turned their back on him. This verse is about angels who knew of Jesus' might and power and yet turned their back on him, and it also did not end well. What these angels did is described in two ways. Number one, they did not stay within their own position of authority. 
And number two, they left their proper dwelling. Angels have been created by God, and they were created by God to worship God in heaven. We have these, some angels, he's saying, left their proper dwelling. They left heaven, and they left their position of authority. They rebelled against their job description. Instead of worshiping Jesus, they left their home in heaven to actually fight against Jesus. Now, what did these angels do? If you go to verse 7, it hints at what they did. Let's read it. It says, just as, so there's a similarity here, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. There is a parallel between what the angels did, who rebelled in verse 6, and what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah, we find sexual immorality going on. That's what it literally says. It's the Greek word pornea. Sexual immorality, pornea, according to scriptures, is any time someone is expressing their sexuality outside of one man with one woman in marriage for life. It's premarital sex, it's extramarital sex, it's pornography on the internet, it's homosexuality, it's lesbianism, it's the whole LGBTQ agenda. That's pornea. Interestingly here, the Greek word here is not regular pornea, it's ekpornea, which means they were participating in extreme sexual immorality. And as we're going to see more of next week, Sodom and Gomorrah were incredible hotbeds for homosexuality. It says they were also pursued unnatural desire, which is good, but it's better in Greek. Because the Greek says what they did is they pursued strange flesh. They pursued a flesh that was incompatible with their own. That's men pursuing men, not compatible. Women pursuing women, think about it, not compatible. That is what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude says the sin of these angels was very similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. Extreme sexual immorality and pursuing a flesh which was incompatible with their own. Wow, that's weird. What is this referring to? Jude had said earlier that I'm reminding you of things that you already know about. So this has to be something that's already been addressed in the Old Testament scriptures. There can only be one passage in all of scripture that addresses this. It's Genesis chapter 6, the first four verses. Let me read those verses to you. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. And it continues. The sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. How does this passage connect with Jude chapter 6? Where are angels in there? This phrase, sons of God, it's used in Job chapter 1 verse 6, chapter 2 verse 1, chapter 38 verse 7 to refer to angels. Sons of God are those beings that have been directly created by God, not born of a mom and dad like we have been. Created by God, fully formed. So what we have here is the Jews, by the way, actually believe Genesis 6 was talking about angels when it came to the sons of God. The Christian church for the first four centuries universally always believed Genesis 6 was talking about fallen angels. There are two options for what is happening here. I'm going to give you these two options. What we have is some of these fallen angels who have chosen to leave their position of authority, have come to earth, they've joined in Satan's rebellion, and one option is they have manifested themselves in human bodies, like we're going to see two angels do in Sodom and Gomorrah next week. Incidentally, by the way, angels, when they're in the scriptures, they always manifest themselves as male. The only time you see a female angel is on your Starbucks coffee cup. That's the coffee angel. That's the only female one out there. It's always a male angel. So either they manifest themselves in human bodies and then pu pursue intimacy with human women, or the other option, which is what I think it is, which is these particularly powerful demons possessed men, then they lived out their sexual fantasies through those men and being intimate with human women. Now, that's a real possibility. You remember Jesus' ministry? How many demon-possessed people were there? Wasn't Jesus always casting out demons who had possessed people, who were then animating people, who were controlling people? So we have a real possibility. These, have, these are guys, or sorry, guys, demons, who are living out their sexual fantasies with human women because they have, and doing it through possessing human men. And what we know is they did a really good job of corrupting the, the earth. A thousand times worse than it is today. Because as soon as you get to the end of Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And immediately after this is when God grabs Noah. God takes Noah and his family, and they build the ark. And Jesus says, we're hitting the reset button on the earth. Everybody's going to die. Except for Noah and his family, we're going to take some of the animals and we're going to start again because corruption is so bad. And Jude's point is that these demons who pursued sexual union with human women did not get away with this. 
he says, speaking about Jesus, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In the flood, Jesus took these particularly heinous and wicked demons, he bound them in chains, and he put them in a dark pit in the universe until the great day, which is the day of judgment when Jesus returns. So right now, those demons that were particularly evil before the flood are no longer able to influence the earth right now. Not that all demons aren't on the earth, just those particularly heinous and evil demons are not on the earth. And this is what we see. The Israelites who were saved by Jesus were later destroyed by Jesus when they turned their back on him. These angels who knew of Jesus' might and power from being in heaven, they turned their back on Jesus. And Jesus eventually took them, bound them, and put them in a pit where they are at right now until the day he returns and ultimately sends them to the lake of fire, along with the rest of the demons and Satan himself. Now I know what some of you were thinking. Pastor Kurt, what did they put on your cornflakes this morning? This is some wild stuff, some far-fetched stuff. I've never heard this kind of stuff preached about in church before. Well, it's in the Bible. I'm just teaching you the text. And by the way, other texts in the Bible support this very same thing. Like, go to 2 Peter. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Sound similar? The only difference is that Peter says they were cast into hell. If you have a paper Bible, you'll notice a footnote next to it. Look at your footnote. It says the Greek word here is tartus. Tartus was a place in Greek mythology where the titans were kept. According to Greek mythology, the titans were bound and chained and put into a dark, deep pit so they could not influence the world any longer. Greek mythology and what the Bible teach all of a sudden start to echo each other. So Peter says these particularly heinous demons are also bound in a dark, deep pit until the day of judgment. It's also found in the Gospels. Now, if you were around with us when we were studying through the Gospel of Mark, you remember in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus and his disciples get in a boat and they sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. There they land, and you have these two demon-possessed crazy people who are in the tombs who come running down the mountainside intending to terrorize Jesus and terrorize the disciples. Remember this story? It's in all the Gospels. And it says these guys are super powerful and super strong and chains can't even hold them. They break chains. Unstoppable people because they're possessed by powerful demons. But they run down and see Jesus. And instead of terrorizing Jesus, they fall before Jesus in complete and total fear. And the gospel accounts actually record about one of those demon-possessed men who has a conversation with Jesus. And Luke tells us about this conversation. Look what he says. 
When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. So much for scaring everybody, right? We'll see who's really scared now. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. What is the abyss? It's a pit of darkness. It's the place where Jesus took their buddies at the time of the flood and bound a bunch of them up with chains and threw them into the pit of darkness where they are there today until the final day of judgment and they are sent to the lake of fire. These guys knew they're crossing the line, powerfully possessing these guys, doing some terrible things through these guys. And they're in line to be thrown into the pit, just like Jesus has done to these other guys. So I simply say this to you to point out this is what's really happened. So the Israelites, who were saved by Jesus, rebelled against Jesus, and as a consequence, never made it to the promised land. The angels, who knew of Jesus' might and, and power, they rebelled against Jesus, and some of them are already bound in pits of darkness until the last day. The simple message is this. Folks, never, ever, ever leave Jesus. Because if we do, it will not end well. When spiritual terrorists slip in amongst us and try to cast doubt on the scriptures of God, Try to tell us that we can be saved by something other than Jesus. Do not go there. It does not end well for anybody. Now, I want to talk to you if you're considering leaving the faith. In particular, I want to talk to you if you were teenagers. I know what it's like to be a teenager. If you grow up in church, and then you go through this time where you're not really too sure, like, why am I going to church? That's my parents' faith. But what about my faith? I don't know if I really believe all this stuff. Folks, it's okay to have questions about your faith. Pursue those questions. I grew up and I had questions about my faith. I had to study. I had to think. I had to talk to people until my parents' faith eventually became my own faith. But I would say to you is this. But as you question your faith, do not dare leave your confidence in Jesus, who is the only one who can save you. Because if you leave Jesus, you leave the only one who can save your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, which reminds us about the deadly danger of rejecting Jesus. I know that there are times when we have questions about our faith, questions about what we believe. And those are good. I pray that those who have questions would pursue answers and have their faith built up. Do not let that faith be torn down like spiritual terrorists would seek to have happen. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.